Reading, short and deep. Hi, I'm Jesse, and I'm Eric, and today we're reading short and deep. Hi, Duel, by Frederick Sinclair. This is first published in Argosy, June 1954. Probably the only publication of this story. And um, two things made me want to read it. Number one was uh, it has a uh, beautiful two-page illustration uh, showing the action of the story. Um, And to me, it instantly made me think of, and along with the title, uh, a very famous uh, short story from the early 20th century called The Most Dangerous Game. And that's basically what this is. It's a retelling of The Most Dangerous Game in a very different way in a different location. Um, But uh, I don't think you can really fault it for that because it's such a great premise for a story. It's been ripped off by so many uh, great um, other stories and, you know, some very famous movies like Predator, uh, the 1980s uh, action classic about an alien coming to Earth to hunt. Um, It's kind of a most dangerous game story. Um, Why don't so, you explain what that that genre has as its as its skeleton? Sure, sure. Um, in the I most dangerous that is a joke. <laughs> yeah, in the most dangerous game, uh, we follow a hunter who uh, gets shipwrecked or falls off a ship and swims to an island that has a notorious reputation, and there he uh, meets a uh, Count Zaroff, a ex-Russian. Um, now occupying this Caribbean island, and uh, he has a uh, fondness for hunting himself. He has many trophies, including a special trophy room where he shows our hero uh, all the humans, the heads of the humans that he's hunted. So this is one of those stories. It, it doesn't follow that premise exactly, but it's a humans hunting human story, as opposed to humans hunting animals. And uh, so with that in mind, and the fact that uh, st- pretty much straight off it gives its location as Bellacula, which is a place I've been near um, in British Columbia, I thought, I'm going to read this story, and then I read it, and I sent it to you. And I liked it, but um, maybe for reasons that would not appeal to some readers. Um This particular story is told by um, a fellow, uh, George, uh, who is um, a helicopter pilot, an impecunious helicopter pilot, based in Bella Coola in the region of Mount Defiance, a lovely name for a mountain, Mm -hmm. um, a tall peak in uh, British Columbia, snow-covered, storm-whipped, and so on. He is hired by a wealthy, arrogant, macho guy. We have no idea where he gets his money from, but we know that his psyche comes from the deepest, darkest adolescence, um, who wants to go out and hunt. He wants to hunt the white goat, that is known to be at the top of Mount Defiance, and its coat is only white, 
and lush in the winter. So this guy wants to go up there in the winter. Along with him is his photographer, a, quote, girl, unquote. Uh, this is a 1954 uh, story printed in Argosy. So girl basically means sexy woman from a man's heterosexual man's viewpoint. Mm -hmm. um, a girl photographer. And right away, our protagonist uh, wonders about the sexuality of this woman. He rises to the occasion, forgive that pun, mm. um, uh, instantly and wonders what her relationship with uh, the, the rich man, uh, Arthur Slade, is. It turns out that uh, Sarah McBride, talk about having a, uh, a sexualized name, her name is McBride, mm -hmm. um, uh, it turns out she is just his photographer because this guy wants to do the most extraordinary kinds of macho feats, basically of violence, uh, and have them recorded. So she's out there taking eight millimeter film of whatever he does. In fact, our guy, uh, George, becomes protective of Sarah. And at a moment when uh, George says, oh, uh, Slade, Arthur Slade says he's going to stay up on the mountaintop. Um, and George says, but it's too cold. And Slade says, well, you don't think I'm going to get into one of those sleeping bags alone, do you? Mm -hmm. uh, he, Arthur feels, uh, George feels so protective that he just turns around and punches this guy. Big mistake. Because now it turns out, and it will turn out, that instead of trying to hunt white goats, who can easily scale the mountain, um, he's going to hunt our guy. Our guy has lots of harrowing moments as he describes how he's going to fall, how he's going to maneuver around. Uh, but eventually, in fact, he's able to put an arrow through. Oh, I should have said that. This guy is a bow and arrow hunter because, mm -hmm. after all, a gun would be too easy. Um, is able to put an arrow through... Uh, the rich guy's shoulder, and when they, when he and Sarah, uh, George and Sarah, save the guy and then bring them down um, on the flight back down, uh, he, our hero, is saying, "Well, I guess I've blown my money, and in fact, he'll probably say that I attacked him." And she says, oh, "No, no, no! I've got the photographic proof. He'll pay you, and you may even get a bonus." And when, that's how it ends. And we don't know whether the bonus only means financial. Or, in fact, she, too, has risen to the occasion of this chivalrous guy who is going to defend her against the wealthy man. Um, it is, in fact, I think, not really a story about hunting human beings. I think it's a story about a testosterone-driven pissing contest mm -hmm. where the girl is the trophy. And, uh, frankly... It's not that interesting to me um, because it's been a long time since I've been willing to think of women as girls <laughs> uh, because I'm not really interested in having pissing contests and because the only thing that really makes it returnable, I can come back to it as a reader, is the nature of the description. Mm -hmm. And... Uh, I can get, you know, Argosy, a men's magazine. I can get why that description is thrilling. But because it's written so vividly, 
months went by between my first and second reading, and the second reading revealed nothing new about the description. And it only deepened my sense of how silly this testosterone stuff is. Mm. Um, for for example, I'll give you one. Um, he goes and uh, he is, goes to the hotel suite, he's called, to meet this guy. The girl let me in. Her name was Sarah McBride. Um, she tried to brief me a little on this Arthur Slade and his peculiar fancies, but I can't say I was listening. She mm -hmm. was tall and raven-haired, unquestionably beautiful. All right, I liked her. From the beginning, I liked her. She took me inside. <laughs> and I got to say, Jesse, on the second reading, she took me inside. Sounds like a double entendre, whether the author was intending to do it or not. <laughs> his unconscious knew where he was going. <laughs> and we see it being carried out in a symbolic way when the rich guy says, I'm not going to get in that sleeping bag alone. So it's very much a story about who's macho. The thing that makes it interesting to me philosophically is that in most of these human hunting human stories, you either die or kill the other guy. Mm -hmm. But here, our helicopter pilot actually doesn't kill the other guy. He wins by being a better person. Not a better shot, but a better person. And that I really kind of like. Mm. So I would recommend the story to people. Yeah, I, I'm a big fan of looking at, at um, stories that are derived from other stories. You know, this... This is something you see a lot in science fiction, and I, I assume that it happens in other genres, too. Um, this is uh, Argosy at this time in the 50s. It was not at its high end. It started in 1880s, and uh, it finished off in the late 70s. Um, and it changed quite a bit. It started off as mostly a general adventure fiction and ended up more as a, a what's called a sweats magazine, which is is like adventure fiction, but sort of gutter <laughs> adventure fiction with a lot of um, World War II stories and I fought I fought the weasels of this island or whatever. Usually, um, <laughs> kind of stories exactly like this, and and uh, it's right in the editorial introduction there. It says I had brought Slade up here to hunt in his own insane way. But I didn't know I was to be the game. So the the just the words the game uh, to me that's an indication that the author knows exactly what he's doing. He is riffing on the most dangerous game, which is a very famous story and would have been even more famous in 1954. There was a movie adaptation that uh, is very good and is on archive.org. Everybody can watch. Um, that story is not told first person. It's told uh, uh, third person. And it's a terrific story, a much better story than this one. But um, uh, one of the reasons it's so terrific is it starts off with the main character um, being a hunter himself and saying that it doesn't matter what the game feels. Uh, it only matters what I feel. And then he has a guy confront him with this and says, we're both hunters. Let's hunt some humans. And he says, I would never do that. And then he says, fine, then you're the game, right? And and then he proceeds to go into a hunting contest. Uh, by the way, using crossbows, um, that's not usually remembered uh, in various adaptations. It's usually guns. Uh, but to make it more visceral, uh, to make the hunt more exciting and more challenging, 
Um, and the title being The Most Dangerous Game is Man, uh, not because we have the sharpest claws or the fastest uh, legs, but rather because we're clever and tricky. And uh, this story doesn't go that way, right? He doesn't finish the guy off. He doesn't murder him. He staunches his wound, puts him on the helicopter, and takes him back to the hotel. And what's funny here is uh, uh, this one, it's almost like it's pulling its punches. But the way it's told by being first person, and even in the section you read there, um, he he is... He will say stuff like, I admit it, <laughs> I liked her from the beginning. And then he says, uh, um, take my word for it. Throughout the story, there's like um, little lines that give judgment uh, to make us feel like this is almost a police statement. Now, I don't think it's supposed to be a police statement, but I do understand, because I, I looked at a lot of these old, I, I still am looking at all, a lot of these old mid-50s magazines where you've got all these guys who uh, either fought in World War II or uh, were witness to World War II, and they're in a society where everybody's drinking a lot, and there's a kind of uh, happiness with the excess of the manufacturing capabilities. Uh, our hero here has very little cash, He's a pilot, probably doesn't own his own airplane, maybe does. Uh, but uh, Arthur Slade has his own DC-3, which is a transport aircraft from World War II. And uh, he's got his own girl he hires to take film camera, uh, not just um, a moving picture, right? It's not just still photography of him doing these things. And the reason for that, it, 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 as you say, it's a sort of testosterone-fueled pissing contest the description of him is is crazy so i just underlined a whole bunch of these here Uh, this is on the second column of the first full page of text um psychopathic pride Uh, it was a total obsession in total service of his psychopathic pride and then um I asked myself, did she belong lock, stock, and soul to this platinum-plated egomaniac? <laughs> um, he's a mad exhibitionist. Um, the Lord of the Jungle. I'm just like, these are from the same page. The Lord of the Jungle and the hero of his own imagination. That way, nobody can call him a big mouth liar. Uh, and then this whole paragraph here. Um... This is on uh, page 54. Uh, Guns are for women and children. I will be using a bow and arrow. I suppose suppose there's nothing really wrong with bows and arrows. This is the narrator thinking. So it's hard to explain why a chill passed through me when he said it. I guess it was the impression I got of this man's intensity. That, That plus the ruthless competence that I intuitively knew would be the servant of his pride. The description of him goes on to be he's a primitive beast. Um, and when he does punch our uh, villain in the face, Arthur Slade, um, the girl thanks him for his gallantry. So here it's not a matter of man against man fighting over, you know, who is the more, more pure hunter, right? The The whole problem with with um, uh, Count Zaroff is 
that he has taken the purity of the hunt to its logical conclusion, right? Um, he isn't eating the meat that he kills. He's killing because that's what humans do, he thinks. And there's nothing more human than to kill. And there's nothing harder to kill than a human. Now, this story doesn't take that tack at all. It says, in fact, the what you want to do is be sexy to ladies. <laughs> and the way you do that is not by being a boorish trying to uh, outdo other men, but rather you want to be gallant and charming and honorable. And uh, it doesn't matter how much stuff you have. As you point out at the end, she says something to the effect of, there might be another bonus. I didn't even clue into that, that, but of course that's what it means. Just like you were saying, uh, when in rereading, noticing the double entendres, this is designed to do exactly that. This is actually, um, saying something rather different from what the dangerous game tells us, which is, uh, you know, uh, at the end of the most dangerous game, something very important happens. He, he kills Zaroff. And then he sleeps in his bed, listening to the hounds chewing and, you know, uh, tearing apart Count Zaroff. And he sleeps like a baby in his bed. Mm -hmm. He's become Zaroff. Whereas this, he's not, he's never going to become, uh, George Nolan, George Nolan is never going to become Arthur Slade. In fact, he's going to win himself a McBride, right? <laughs> right. Over 10 billion served. <laughs> uh, I, I think going along with the, the differences here, um, while it is true and important that George Nolan will never become an Arthur Slade, I think one of the things that the story would ask us to think about if it weren't so wrapped up in the testosterone and the adventure is whether or not the roots, the, the underlying motivation for both of these men mightn't, in fact, be the same. Mm. Um, he measured his next remark. Look, you idiot. Do you think I intend to climb into one of these bags alone? Okay, that's, you know, they're talking about the cold. And you know, what Slade has said is, I'm going to make my paid photographer get in there with me. Then it continues. I don't know. Maybe I just wasn't born bright, but I think it was the way Sarah looked from this man to me that made me do what I did. I took a full step forward and punched him cleanly on the jaw. I knocked the big monkey right on his back so that he was stretched in the snow, his arms open wide, stiff with surprise, only half believing what had happened to him. Even so, I don't think he was scared. You made a mistake, he announced. And it seems to me that's a crucial sta statement. You made a mistake, I believe, indicates that the bad guy has just changed his plan. Mm -hmm. He didn't need he didn't need a photographer along to kill a human being, because that's not that's not something that he would want evidence about. Mm -hmm. He really did want to get that white goat, mm -hmm. but now. He, right, he's going to change what he's doing. The thing is, the macho motives behind the bad guy 
have the same root as the macho motives behind the good guy, mm-hmm. who, after all, is, you know, just being chivalrous for a woman he's just met. And by the way, when she warns, thanks him for being chivalrous, we know that it's after he is no, they are no longer in the bad guy's mm-hmm. earshot. Mm-hmm. So it's A, as if they're conspiring together, but B, as if they both recognize this is a guy who's pushed that motive further than it should be pushed. But that doesn't mean that it's a good guy and a bad guy. It means it's a macho guy and a really macho guy. And that's that's a little bit more philosophically interesting yes. than just having a white hat and a black hat. I want to I wanna compliment what you've said by reading a section just a little farther along here. Um, this is on the middle of page 55. Um, I was barely uh, uh, clinging, clinging to the wall. I was barely enough removed from my former position to be out of this madman's range. This is after he, uh, uh, Slade has taken a shot at um, Nolan. Um, he says, Slade, uh, Slade, I screamed. Slade, you lunatic. I'm not a goat. I could hear him laughing. Feel your horns, boy. Feel your horns, this sportsman called. You're armed now, Nolan. You're on your own. So he came up here to shoot the goat, right? And he was planning to have the video, we would call it today, the moving picture film of him there so that when he goes into his bar with his other fancy, expensive hunter guys, he can say he was up on top of the 14,000-foot mountain defiance in Bella Coola and shot a mountain goat nobody has ever shot in the winter. And instead of having to drape the uh, the skin over uh, the bar and show it to everybody, he, the other guys there will call him a liar. He can just get the video out and show them, right? That was his plan. So when he gets punched in the face by this uh, Nolan character... Oh. Don't leave that passage. There's something. Oh, he's going your horns. Oh yeah, no. There's no question. He's turned. He's he's cu- he says I'm cuckolding you. Oh yeah. Oh exactly. yeah. Feel your horns means that McBride is to be thought of as George's bride, and now I'm going to take her from you. Mm-hmm. Feel your horns. Yep. It's it, it, there's no question of it. It, it is about sexual competition, but for him, it was it was a given that he gets to sleep with his paid photographer. And the thing is, is the helicopter pilot here is getting paid too, right? So there's this question of the manliness. Now, when this contest goes back and forth a little bit, he's screaming for Sarah to find out if she's alive. Um, he says, you wouldn't leave the girl, he taunted. You're a ten-cent hero, Nolan, and you're stuck with it. So he says, you have to play it my way, right? You can't just take off in the helicopter and not play. You have to play it my way. But that ten-cent hero, that is referring to, you know, the pulps of the 1920s and 1930s, where you could get yeah. a ten-cent hero. And here, this is a world-weary, post-World War II story 
set in a wild location. I, I want to give you just a little more context. Bella Coola is about halfway up the British Columbia coastline between Vancouver and Alaska. And it's very, in a sm very small town. It's about 2,000 people there. Um, Mount Defiance is real, although they inflated the height in this story uh, by about 6,000 feet. <laughs> it's only 8,000. Uh, 500 or so in, in reality. Um, there are, I'm sure there are helicopter tours there, or at least were. Um, there are hunting lodges in the area. Um, but it's also located in a provincial park called Tweedsmere Provincial Park. There's actually two of them, uh, north and south Tweedsmere. And, uh, if you recall your, uh, Lord Tweedsmere, um, that's another writer. And that's John Buchan who was the Governor General of Canada at the time, just shortly after he visited the area, they named the park after him. Um, and he is a guy who would write these stories of manly adventure, uh, usually uncovering conspiracies uh, against the Empire. Here, the, we're dispensing with all of that. The, the fact that this is said in Balakula doesn't matter. It, the, the nation doesn't matter. It's just man against man for woman. And it's so interesting to see this as a post-World War II story, as opposed to a pre-World War II story, where you've got those Tencent heroes. But in the reality of our modern times of the 1950s, you can't just go around killing people. <laughs> You can, you can, this is, a, you can't have a duel like this. This is, it's not allowed. And so how is a man supposed to deal with his fellow man? He's supposed to stand up to him, but we're not allowed to literally duel anymore. There are laws against these things, right? So how do we deal with it? And I see a lot of the magazines like Playboy, they deal with this by going actually the way Slade does which is you buy everything. You know, if you look at the ads for what's going on in these magazines, it's about buying a, a sports car. It's about buying that new jacket. It's buying the hunting equipment that you're going to need. And our hero doesn't have any of that stuff. So how is one supposed to do it? Just by being suave. That's the way you win girls. So well, I think that's kind of interesting. I think it is interesting. I think he's not just suave, though. I, I want to turn back to the title. It's a high duel. Mm -hmm. It's high in that it happens up in the mountains and at an inflated altitude, as you point out. But it's also high from the standpoint of the narrator because he is, in fact, moral mm -hmm. as opposed to the bad guy who is immoral. For him, it's a high duel. For the narrator, for the bad guy, it is not. It's just... A duel. In fact, he is so self uh, self uh, confident that he probably doesn't think of it as a duel at all. Mm -hmm. He knows that he's given a weapon to the his intended victim that the weapon that a victim can't use. I, I'd like to point out. So we have a title, high duel. Then we have a uh, an editorial uh, comment. I had brought Slade up here to hunt in his own insane way but I didn't know I was to be the game. Now, and I've, titles have three fundamental functions. I've actually written about this. Titles can label. 
right? So you go into the bookstore and you say, I'd like a copy of The Great Gatsby. That's the label. It's yeah, you, you can find it that way. It's mm-hmm. like a serial number. Uh, two, titles can engage us. They can make us think, hmm, what is this like? You know, what, what does this bring to mind? So if mm-hmm. you have a title all about Eve, it brings to up all sorts of associations about women and perhaps temptation. You have a si- title that's all about Charisse, and uh-huh, that's got a whole different <laughs> set of interpretations. It's If you have a title, something about Charisse, or something about Mary, as we have an actual famous movie, but it has other associations. That titles engage us. They make us think, what might this be? What might this fit within and third they categorize so a high duel high duel tells us there's some kind of conflict going on here Mm -hmm. and there is apparently some kind of appropriate match it's not i mean you wouldn't call a human being with a uh an elephant gun going out after elephants dueling no right so Duel tells us something about the dramatic structure. It tells us about the incipient violence. So we have all of that from the title. Now, those editorial comments, I had brought Slate up here, blah, 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 blah. They can only do two and three. They can't do the labeling. It's too long Mm -hmm. to function as a label. But they can engage us, and they can categorize the story. That is, once we know the story, it tells us, or even before we know it, It tells us what kind of story we're dealing with. And I would put it to you that in this case, the title and the editorial comment, even absent the illustrations, tell us so much that the story should be boring Mm -hmm. if it were not for the detail. With the illustration, we get the sense that it might be kind of exciting because it's a pretty darn good-looking illustration. Mm -hmm. Um, However, on rereading... It seems to me there's nothing left to the story unless we do what you and I were doing, unless we think of it not as just a high duel, but the motivations behind the duel and the differing motivations for the different duelers, the gender relations at the time, the economic relations at the time, this notion that we are involved here in a psychological conflict that the physical one merely reifies. Looking at it that way, He's not a tin a ten cent hero. He in fact is what a real everyman should be. And that's why he functions as a hero for Argosy. But I have to ask you, um, if you disagree with what I've just said, of course, speak up to that. But I found nothing about the putative author. I couldn't find that Frederick Sinclair mm. published anything else. I couldn't find it. Uh, that it was a pseudonym for anybody. I know nothing about no, this author. I don't know anything Do either. No. No. So if we could only find that out, it might be in yet another way that this apparently simple story leaves us with always more to say. Thanks very much for listening. And remember, you can always freely access the materials discussed on these podcasts by going to sffaudio.com and clicking on the link for Reading Short and Deep. If you enjoyed this podcast, consider becoming a patron at patreon.com forward slash sffaudio.